Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. James Lake along with you. Uh, we have the, well, first of all, um, just a warning, uh, the internet's not working. <laughs> uh, according to Rich, it's really bad, and so, yeah, sorry, I don't know what we can do about it. Some days it's perfect, uh, and then other days it isn't, and we don't know, and Cox Communications, for some reason, doesn't know either uh, why any of that is, so... We do the best we can on our end, and uh, then you just deal with it uh, from there. So we're going to do the best we can. I've already turned Twitter off so that I don't see all the, I can't, it's stopping and starting, and, I, you know, hopefully we'll get it all recorded and get it, uh, get it posted uh, for you uh, as quickly as possible if that is what is necessary. Might as well start off with something uh, somewhat lighthearted. This is what I wanted to play for you uh, last time, and, and the tech uh, got in our way that time, too. Uh, but um, I don't know. I thought this was well done, and it's not actually, um, sadly, it, it, it's any good parody is good because it's truthful. And that's it's got at least an element of truth to it, and that's what this has. So... Here we go. Here's uh, here's the COVID mask. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Man trying to enter an office building on 4th and Main with no mask. Repeat, no mask. I woke into my job late last week when my co-workers all began to freak. They started cursing and began to shout and said quite rudely as the boss threw me out. You need a mask. I need a COVID mask. A COVID mask. It seemed a lot to ask To wear a mask To do a simple task Put on a mask I need a COVID mask Made it mandatory almost every place That we can't be seen unless we hide our face I can't even leave my humble abode Without something covering my mouth and nose We need a mask We need a COVID mask A COVID mask it seems a lot to ask To wear a mask Can't even mow my grass Without a mask Without a COVID mask wow. This mask wearing isn't fun And the snitching has now begun My neighbor called the hotline Cause my dog wasn't wearing one Walking through the mall, a woman's voice did ring. Seemed she was troubled by just one thing. She pointed to the door, shook her fist, and said, What are you trying to do, you jerk? Make everybody sick? Forgot his mask. Forgot my COVID mask. It's COVID mask. Nobody gets a pass. That stupid mask. Can't even pump my gas. Without a mask. Without a COVID mask. I'm home. What do you want? I need to come in and get my mask. You're not daddy in the house, mommy. He's not wearing his mask. No mask, no entry. Sorry. But honey. You should have taken it with you. You're not getting in this house. I changed the locks. She changed the locks. <laughs> That's... It, it, the, the sad thing is we're seeing videos of, of, of people to where this is... It, that's what makes it funny is... Um, the COVID mask. Yes, there you go. Very well done. Parody lyrics by Dale Officer. Then uh, gave the original lyrics to Monster Mash, but I, are those people even still alive today? <laughs> I'm 
that was a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there you go. The uh, the COVID mask. That's what I wanted to play for you uh, last week, but uh, we didn't get a chance to do that. And you have to try to smile, but it, it's hard to. Um, this morning I get up and uh, uh, New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand, We'll move back into alert level three at midday today, meaning schools will be shut and most people required to work from home. Public facilities, businesses, and restaurants will be closed. Full close down in, in Auckland. Lockdown. The rest of your country moves into level two. The news was announced by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern late last night after COVID-19 was confirmed. Ready? After, after hundreds of deaths? After COVID-19 was confirmed in the community when four people from one Auckland family tested positive. No deaths, but four positive tests. Viruses are going to do that. I, I mean, unless you just, I suppose New Zealand could just simply uh, put its Navy out there and... Um, no more, no more, you know, just lock themselves down and put a wall around it. And that might work uh, for something that's 99.97% survivable. Um, and if you have, if you have, don't have comorbidity factors. Um, yeah. So there, Auckland Mayor Phil Goff pleaded for calm as people rushed to some supermarkets. Yeah. Yeah. And then just across the ocean a little bit, we have all of the uh, amazing uh, video coming out of people being manhandled by Australian police, uh, forcibly masked. And I mean, literally, stormtroopers uh, kneeling on housewives' backs. And next, yeah, yeah, exactly like somebody else that we know um, about masking stuff. And and I, I mean, you're talking uh, checkpoints and the army, and I mean, people just—it must be the Walking Dead down there, right? So I thought, wow, they're taking this so seriously. Uh, let's let's see what the numbers are. I mean, people just must be falling like flies. And so this was um, on the tenth. So yesterday, yesterday morning, here is the um, here is the chart that I took from the Australian Health Service. Of this bar chart shows the total number of confirmed deaths with COVID nineteen in Australia for each age group and sex since the twenty second of January. Okay, this is the totals, folks. And if you can't read it, the top number here is 60. 60. So if you're, if you're less than 70 years of age, okay, because this is where the comorbidity factors kick in. If you don't know don't what a comorbidity factor is, you need to know that once you get in these age ranges, there's normally other stuff going wrong with you. You're taking medications and you've got you know, you're like rich, you know, everything just starts falling apart and it's just, just everything stops working. And so you've got all sorts of stuff going on here and there are all sorts of 
diseases that take advantage of the weaknesses of the body. A pneumonia is the best known uh, in uh, taking out older people. So, yeah, but still the numbers are tiny, even above 70. But below that, I mean, there's nothing below the 30 to 39. It looks like one. It looks like one between 40 and 49. And then maybe three or four between 50 and 59, probably cancer patients. I bet you dollars donuts if you looked at it. And by the way, if you notice that COVID really does not like men, um, it, it, it's true. Uh, there, there is definitely female privilege going on here. I don't know what we can do about it, but we need to pass a law, burn a cop car, do something, because that seems to be how you're supposed to protest these things. Um, but th- there's, there's, just, there's nothing here. And yet, all these liberties, freedoms, gone. Uh, businesses destroyed. Lockdown. Make everybody depend upon the government. Ha! How did this happen? So quickly and all across the globe it's happening. Huh. Out of something like this. Y- you got to understand, uh, kids, um, <laughs> if this is going on now, what's going to happen when the next flu strain comes along? Because we've already said we'll do it. We've already, we, No one's pushing back. Well, a few of us are trying, but we've already said, so the next flu, flu strain that comes along. Uh, any disease at all. Why haven't we been doing this all along, is what I want to know. I mean, it, the, the inconsistency here is astonishing. It really is. It, it's just, it's just, wow. I did see really good news this morning. It was an excellent thread that I read from a medical doctor talking about T-cells. It made perfect sense because it fits, it actually fits the data. Because um, there are some people that this thing is a a nothing burger. They they, they test positive and they're like, really? Um, well, I guess you know, a couple weeks ago I I sneezed once. Uh, but it's, for some people, it's an absolute nothing burger. It, it they don't even know they have it. Why? You would think that would be the big question. You know, you would think that would be the thing that with all the research and stuff like that. But it's not because what's all the research about? Vaccines. Oh yes, you gotta gotta get those recombinant RNA DNA genetically engineered vaccines out there. You know, because you gotta produce billions of them, and you're gonna have to get them every year. And oh yeah, <laughs> you don't think there's somebody just salivating over that? Oh, you bet. But this idea of of actually your body, an immune system and stuff, T-cells, all sorts of... You would think there would even be more information in this area. It's slowly coming out. The people who are still working and maybe not getting the government, all the government money, but are going, hey, you know, it seems that some people actually have a natural immunity to this stuff because they... They have T cells that have responded to other coronaviruses and they seem to fight this stuff off. And hey, maybe there's a way to do this without quiet. That ruins all the political power and money. And just follow the money. Just follow the money. It's it's astonishing. It really is. It's just it's just shocking what we're seeing out there. Um, But anyway, 
uh, there's the COVID mask song. So some of you are going to be, some of you folks are going to be bouncing around the house. The COVID mask. You, you can't, you can't help. That's, that's just what? You know, I only run 29 days of risk. You know that, right? You only run 29 days of what? Risk. I don't know what that means. See, see, in October, I turned 60. Oh, really? And then after November 4th, the risk is over. That's true. So I only run 29 days of risk. That's true. So yep. I'll probably have to quarantine for all of October. Yep, yep, that's true. Um, October surprise coming. Kamala Harris, uh, the next uh, Marxist president of the United States. Um, because I'm sorry, Joe, Joe Biden's not there. Um, so Joe Biden's handlers chose Kamala Harris, which is fascinating. Uh, really, really fascinating. But I mentioned on Twitter just a few minutes ago that, uh, I remember I was driving through a beautiful Canyon outside of Evergreen, Colorado, listening to one of those interminable, uh, democratic debates last summer. I don't know if any of you remember those, but they had like, what, at one point, 22, was it 22, 23 candidates? And so they had to divide it up because you just can't have that many people on the stage at once. And I just remember at that time thinking to myself as I was listening, I was saying, man, the worst one of all these people is Kamala Harris. And thank you, 2020. (laughs) It's just just that year. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, um, I I wanted to mention a... um, a Twitter exchange that I did not have. <laughs> uh, actually, my daughter did. Uh, most of you know that uh, Summer Yeager is my daughter, and she does Sheologians, and uh, lots of folks enjoy listening to Sheologians, so that's a free plug there uh, for uh, for Sheologians, for Summer and Joy, and the hard work they put in. <laughs> you know, I haven't asked her, and I haven't asked Luke, if they've said anything about it, but I, I have to wonder if there haven't been a few times when both Summer and Joy have wanted to have a conversation with Luke Pearson, uh, one of my fellow pastors at Apologia, who was the one who not only came up with the name, but they're all sitting around along with Marcus Pittman going, y'all ought to do a webcast. <laughs> Years later now, Sometimes I I wonder if they if they go thanks Luke thanks Marcus <laughs> appreciate all this especially with the name because it's identical it's just what it's just what John said about skillet it was ah, that's funny let's go with it and then years later it's like okay for the hundred and forty seven thousandth time this is where skillet came from same thing with sheologians you know it was that was Luke. I'm pretty sure it was Luke. Uh, she elogies. And uh, you just have to explain it over and over and over again. It's just just the way it works. Anyways, Summer um, had posted uh, a, a tweet about Big Eva and uh, the, the Democrats and basically pandering to the transgender lobby and most of us are well aware of the fact that what we have seen has been a, a, a massive evolution that began at Stonewall. Well, it began before that, but really exploded at the Stonewall riots. And interestingly enough, even though that was primarily associated with homosexuality, there was a lot of 
cross-dressing at the, that transgenderism. I don't even think it was a term at that time. Um, but we have seen a tremendous revolution and we have talked on this program many times before about the reality that after Obergefell, that was, I think, I think it was the day after my anniversary. So I think it was June 26th when Obergefell came down in 2015. Um, I was in Flagstaff. I remember I was speaking at a conference up in, in at NAU. And the, it's it was like the next day. A switch was flipped. And it moved from, quote-unquote, homosexual rights to transgenderism. Transgenderism became the cause celeb. Homosexuality was almost yesterday's news. You, you've got your gay marriage rights you've we've we've you you've gone as far as we can go homosexuality by its nature affirms gender categories so if you want to continue the deconstruction of the society of what holds us together and allows us to cooperate together and have morality and law and make advancement to bring about anarchy so that you can then reset everything, start everything over, and now you're in charge. Um, you've, the homosexuality can only take you so far. Transgenderism destroys it all. That, that takes it down to the very foundation. And so, remember during the, uh, when Elizabeth Warren was, was talking about uh, one of the things she was going to do, what, what was it? She was going to uh, uh, have a, a assign a, a young teenage transgender person to her cabinet or something as a, to lead in such and such a thing. And, and you know that Kamala Harris is going to say some, something similar, too, because Kamala Harris can actually speak. Uh, she can actually you know, put two or three sentences together before she starts talking about Joe Biden's hairy legs. Um, and so... She will she will be the one out there doing the stuff and she it's going to fall to her to be promoting this stuff. And so you're going to you're going to be getting the same kind of promises of positions for transgender people, so on and so forth, coming from uh, from Kamala Harris, who is now going to become the mouthpiece for the uh, she's not going to hide in a she's not going to hide in her basement. And so she. I still, to this point, believe that before the election, Joe Biden will drop out and maybe she'll take, the, take his place. I don't know that that would, how that would even work, but I just, I, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the man is non compass mentis. He, 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 that's the legal Latin phrase. The, 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 he can't pass one of those tests because he, he don't function anymore. That's just all there is to it. And we all know it. It, it's it's not even it, if this was any other situation, if if this guy was a used car salesman, there would be a 99 percent universal recognition of what's wrong with him. But I think his family should be whipped with a wet noodle. That's what my mom used to say. Uh, you know, they should be should be whipped with a wet noodle, uh, which when you think about it is some really mid mid Midwestern thing to say. Anyway, so Summer was having a conversation. She, she said something about this, and evidently someone I do not know had not heard of before. Charlotte Clymer. 
C-L-Y-M-E-R, with the rainbow flag after his name, because he is a transgender person. And I found it interesting, because I looked him up online, and he uses a an animated, not animated in the sense moving, but it's not a picture of him. Uh, even dressed as a woman, it's a female avatar. Um, and that's that's the fantasy. That's what he thinks he is, is this petite little girl when he's not a petite little girl. And he can never be a petite little girl because genetically he's not a little girl. He's not little anything. He's a man. Always will be. Can't transition. It's not possible. But Charlotte Clymer... Uh, responded to uh, Summer, and they had a brief exchange. And one of the here's what Summer had written. He he was talking about disrespect. So on so forth. says she said, "You and I, a, you and I may have different views on gender. Fine, but I believe that you are made in the image of God, and as such, you are worthy of my respect, no matter what else you or I believe." Because he was talking about, "Oh, you're just being disrespectful." So on and so forth. His response, and by the way, the fact that I am properly recognizing science and the reality of science and the history of this individual is called misgendering today. So we've, we've, we actually, we're actually, we've actually come up, we're, we're 1984-ing this. It's, it's, it's Brave New World, 1984, Fahrenheit 451. It's everything smashed into one, into one big, ugly mess uh, to where we're actually using words the opposite of what their meaning would be. So I'll be accused of misgendering him by using the proper pronouns that, that represent the reality of his genetics, his history, his birth certificate, and everything else. Uh, that's, that's Orwell to the nth degree, completely, right there. Um. But he said to Summer, Summer, I think you genuinely believe that. I think you truly believe you love as God intended, and that terrifies me. Y'all did the same thing with gay, lesbian, and bisexual folks. Notice the T is coming along and recognizes the distinction between the L, the G, and the B. Because I've, I've said many times, the the, the whole LGBTQRSTUV thing is a potpourri of self-contradiction. The T is at fundamental odds with the G and the L. The B is off by itself someplace. But the LGB all assumes gender categories that T destroys. And so it's well known that transgender females, who are just males, um, are constantly in catfights with feminists who recognize that there are such things as women. So Martina Navratilova recognizes that male athletes pretending they're female is cheating. And it is. No rational person can argue that. Sorry. You try to argue that, and and it's just so easy to tie you into a, into a knot uh, with, with almost not even having to bring the facts into the matter. But anyway, uh, so there is, there is this 
huge amount of tension within that context. He says, that terrifies me. Y'all do the same thing with gay, lesbian, and bisexual folks. Love the sinner, hate the sin, right? God does not think my authenticity is a sin or shameful. So here, what this revealed to me is what is really absolutely uh, central in the thinking of the trans individual who is pretending to be something that they're not. Uh, God does not think my authenticity is a sin or shameful. So you can share all the violently anti-trans propaganda nonsense you want that tells trans and non-binary people they're not real. But I know better. I pray to a loving God who created me this way, and you will never invalidate God's promise to me. Now, listen to those words. This is a person desperately seeking to convince themselves about a reality they know is not real. This, this is a self-deluded person. This is a person desperate to maintain a personal delusion that they have invested their entire identity into. So God does not think my authenticity is a sin or shameful. Now, do you think this person actually has any foundation whatsoever? any foundation whatsoever for even beginning to provide some kind of objective foundation from Scripture for this kind of... I mean, these are theological statements. He is pretending to know what God does and does not think. So either he receives personal revelation or he's arguing that there is something in Scripture, somebody's Scripture, that provides a foundation for this. There isn't anything. I mean, let, let's be honest, there's, there's no discussion of transsexual individuals in all of Scripture. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to claim to be a Christian, uh, then Jesus would have known about transsexuals, right? Because he was God in human flesh. So why didn't he say anything about them? Why, why, why would the Spirit of God who gives the Scripture not have said anything about all of that? Um... So, the reality is that Scripture identifies male and female as creative categories made by God, not determined by man, and says they're good, says they're important, they're vital, and it's obvious that any person that he creates as a male, and we're not talking here, we're not talking here about people who have a genetic disorder, 99.9% of quote-unquote transsexuals have no genetic ambiguity whatsoever. It is a choice on their part. It's not like they... There are serious, identifiable, chromosomally-based disorders. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are genetically male or genetically female just simply rebelling against the reality of their own created nature. So, notice the words that he uses. My authenticity. They're not real. God created me this way. Do you hear what's 
do you hear what's going on here? Do you hear? Do you, you see why this is having to happen? Do you see what what the motivation here is? Because the reality is, even if this individual has poisoned their body with foreign substances, hormone treatments, and things like that, which are not treatments, they are it's poison. It is the long term medical effect of introducing unnatural hormonal um, substances into the body is universally recognized in medical science as deleterious to lifespan and to health and to everything else. That, that's, that's, not, that's not questionable either. That is a good way to destroy yourself. And maybe this individual has been mutilated, has chosen to voluntarily mutilate their bodies and make themselves non-functional in being able to uh, father children, bear children, whichever side of that natural divide you're on. Um, None of that makes you a man or a woman. And that's why the suicide rate is so astronomically high for post-operational transgender-deceived persons because it doesn't do what they hoped it would do. It doesn't change things. They, they have to get up every morning and convince themselves of the deception that they had to convince themselves of the day before as well. And so you can hear this in the very words that are being spoken. Now, Everybody in this audience knows right now, this could be the last dividing line you'll ever see on YouTube. If you dare say what is obviously true. Speaking obvious truths is not really legal anymore as far as the, the tech, our, our new tech overlords are concerned. And so you, you can't... It's, the, the censor who finally gets us will sit there and will hear what I'm saying and say, that's it, they're gone, but know in their heart of hearts, I can't refute it, I can't argue with it, but that's offensive, or that's not safe. That's the new religion, safism. Uh, you got to make everybody feel safe, which means no one is actually safe at all, because if you don't speak the truth, there's no safety anyways. So the question I had was, how do you approach someone like this who is in essence demanding that you as a Christian respect the fundamental perversion and violation of God's created order? Well, you have to distinguish and, 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 and here's the part. Here, here, see, the answer is that you distinguish between them and their sin. As it was even brought out, love the sin or hate the sin. But you see, for this kind of sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism, for this kind of sexual sin, the defense mechanism is to make it a part of your identity. So if you do what we're called to do, which is to recognize the individuals being made the image of God and therefore on that basis call them 
to repentance because God has revealed what is right and what is wrong and and how they're supposed to behave. That is considered just as horrible and unloving an action as anything else could be. That's... And and that's purposeful. That that's the that's that's the way that this has been designed to try to shut down any kind of meaningful communication with this person. Because if you try to say, I honor you as my fellow creature, and as my fellow creature, I call you to recognize the truth of who you really are in light of what God has said, is automatically interpreted through their grid as I deny to you the authenticity that you live every day to try to obtain. The only other option, and this is an option many people have chosen to take, is to say, well, at least temporarily I'll go ahead and go along and I will use the pronouns and I will... um, uh, use the names, and I will I will treat this man as if he's a woman, in the hopes of somehow getting through. But the, the, the problem is, by doing so, you have reaffirmed the initial, first, strongest level of defense of the delusion, the identity, and in the process have abandoned the one foundation from which you can call to them as an image bearer. It is strange, isn't it? I mean, obviously, there are all sorts of completely secular homosexuals and transgenders that got no interest in religion, God, nothing. Lots of them. But we always end up running into the religious ones. I'm not sure if this guy is religious or not. I mean, he said some things here. Um, But it is so inconsistent to, on the one hand, affirm the existence of God. And on the other hand, and in fact say, uh, you will never invalidate God's promise to me. Now, again, what's that supposed to mean? Uh, I don't know what kind of claims this guy makes for himself. Um. But on the one hand, to say that God exists, and even to claim that God has promised something to you, but then you put yourself in the position of determining your own reality. God doesn't do that for you. Then again, I've known, I know a few Christians do the same type of thing, too. It's just in a different area. So. But there is, there is one of the, the, the pitfalls, the difficulties that you face, the tough things that you try to deal with. Um, is be- because of the element of um, the element of identity that is part and parcel of of what we have there. Now, real quickly, to go from the serious to the not so serious before we go back to the serious, throw some non serious stuff in here. Um, did you all see the King James, the KJV, the Andrew Sluter numerology video that uh, that came out? I-, I just thought it was worth taking a look at because it's. Well, it's a KJV numerology video. They're just, they're just so much fun. Um, this came out a couple days ago. Uh, let's just, uh, what's this guy's name? Chad Reese. 
Chad Reese is is on with Brother Sluter, and Brother Sluter is in his. Uh, uh, now put it put it up on the on the bottom here because I want I want to point something out because I, I didn't do this before, but I want you to see right there. See that? See where my I'm right in the middle there. You know who that is? Do you recognize who that is, Rich? Peter Ruckman. That is that is Peter Ruckman, the same Peter Ruckman that sent me all those nasty letters and sent me that racist book called Black is Beautiful with all the uh, cartoons of black people in it and stuff like that. That's Peter Ruckman. So that gives you an idea of um, uh, we've got a, a proud Ruckmanite uh, here in uh, in uh, Andrew Sluter. So let's let's check some of the uh, some of the stuff you and I have been missing just reading our Bibles and doing stuff like that. We, we, need to, we need to get the whole picture here. So let's, let's listen in. This book is amazing. Yeah. I mean, thank God for salvation. Thank God what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. But now that I'm saved, man, this book is so rich and so deep. And uh, so when we study this, you just start seeing amazing things. Like, for instance, the sixth commandment is thou shall not kill. Well, we know in the New Testament, Jesus defines this as thou shall not murder. Well, murder has six letters in it. And what you're doing is you're taking the life of a man because six is the number of man. Mm. And by the way, according to the Old Testament. Okay, let's just remind ourselves of just a couple, just little basic things. Um, When the Bible was inspired by the Spirit of God, the English language did not exist. Even once the English language came into existence, there was no standardized spelling for the majority of the existence of the English language. And so murder could be written in different ways and was written in different ways with different numbers of letters. Um, and of course, what's fascinating is the King James does not accurately render Ufanusis, which is the Greek of that commandment. In some of the committees, uh, for example, when, in Matthew and Romans, the King James in one has murder, the other has kill. The two committees, both are accurate translations. One is more specific than the other, but there wasn't a final committee that smoothed that kind of stuff out. And so atheists have used that to argue against the validity of Scripture uh, and things like that. So the whole idea that the sixth commandment uh, in English, the word murder has six letters, uh, and that's the number of man, is completely fortuitous linguistically speaking and historically speaking. But not for these guys. If you killed someone by accident, God appointed six cities that you could flee to. And those six cities were called the cities of refuge. And again, refuge has six letters in it. You say, why? Because six is the number of man. And again, and again, when the cities of refuge were ordained by God, the word refuge didn't exist. And the vast, I mean, anybody who has studied Hebrew, for example, knows that Hebrew verbs, almost all Hebrew verbs, are triliteral. So they have three letters. So 
Is that the Trinity? Um, to flee, you know, that's going to have three letters, but then depending on who's fleeing, you're going to have the, the, uh, things at the end of the word, beginning of the word, pronominal suffixes, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but this has nothing to do with the English language. There, there was no English language when any of this was originally written, and there wouldn't be in the case of Moses for almost two and a half millennia. Yes, sir? I, I feel like I've, I've heard this somewhere before. Something about the, the Titanic and the White Star Line. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. You know, King James only, very, folks. Very, very familiar. Yeah. King Wash, James. Mm-hmm. Second verse, same, <laughs> same as the first. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sluters, uh, I think Sluters. I don't know. I could be wrong. Uh, I, I don't remember what Sluters' view of, uh, of uh, Gail Ripplinger is, but anyway. You just see these miraculous things over and over and over again about the number six. I think about the the battle at Jericho where God, if you read it in chronological order, in Joshua chapter six there, he tells them the very first command is to march around the walls of Jericho six days. Mm -hmm. Right now, we know they went a seventh day, but that comes later. That command comes later. Chronologically, he tells them first to march around six days because six belongs to man. By the way, as I said in my teaching of this, Nothing happened in that sixth day. They marched around six times, nothing happened. That's because six belongs unto man, and if you want something to happen, you need God to be involved, and seven belongs to God. Mm-hmm. That's when the walls fall. But nevertheless, what's back to our... our so, so does that mean that God had nothing to do with the cities of refuge because there were only six cities of refuge? So you need to build the seventh city of refuge for God to get... I, I, it's really hard to follow some of this stuff. Wait, is Joshua is the first book named after them a man in the Old Testament, and it's the sixth book of the Old Testament. And again, just by coincidence, which we don't believe it is, Joshua has six letters in his name. Again, all... Now again, uh, Joshua does not have six letters in his name when, when written in Hebrew, because like S-H in, in English is just one letter in the Sheen in, in Hebrew. Um, and there was no English language. And of course, the order of the canon is different in Hebrew than it is in our Bibles today. And so if you start doing multiples of six, that eventually is going to fall apart uh, as, as well. But I, I, I realize that I'm looking for consistency in the midst of this. Do you think he got together with some of those people doing 2 plus 2 equals 5? We were talking no, about no, 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 <laughs> not at all. No, no, the 2 plus 2 equals 5 people are weird, uh, weirder, believe it or not. Uh, no, no, they didn't get, no. Just points to 6 as a number man. All this is significant to understand what the days reveal. Uh, now, when you get into the New Testament, we know the sixth book of the New Testament is the book of Romans. It's the only book with the word man in it. It also has six letters in it. Now, just in case you've misunderstood, <laughs> man appears, anthropos or on air or whatever, andras, um, uh, appears in many books of the New Testament. He's talking about the actual name that we use in English rather than, because he says in the New Testament, but again, it Roman, Roman, M A N is is in Romans, um, so that's that's where that. But I think that that 
I think he missed something there because if you're Jamaican, then Mon appears in Philema. <laughs> hey, Mon. <laughs> hey, Mon. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> and just by coincidence, if you go to Romans chapter 6, verse 6, and you look at the sixth word, that also is man. The, 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 this book is... Okay, okay. <laughs> All right. I, okay. Go ahead and take that down. Uh, I... You got you got that okay. Um, <laughs> Romans, uh, I, I I forgot to I forgot to to, to Romans six six, and of course the New American Standard is our old self. It's it's our old man in the in the King James. Um, Oh, I'm so sorry. In Greek, it's actually the seventh word in Romans six six, and of course, the divisions of Romans into chapters was done long, long, long after the time of the apostles, and then the verses. Now, here's this is how this is how you completely destroy these poor guys, is to point out that the verse division which makes this the sixth verse, was done by a Calvinist. Yeah, it's done by Robert Estienne, who was Calvin's printer at Geneva between 1550 and 1551. So uh, that's the only reason. Right, that's right. Uh, so he, yeah, he, he, he knew Calvin personally. So um, <clears throat> what's frightening is that there are literally thousands and thousands of people who think that kind of stuff has validity and then when someone absolutely decimates that kind of reasoning they're left with nothing I I don't know if I kept it Um, I don't think that I did but let me me just look here really quickly I, I took a screenshot of um is this it? Yes, yes. Did you all see the the King James only um guy I I posted this and I and I said this was the guy that was clapping all the time. Faith, faith, faith and 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 there's these younger people who are watching all this and he is just it's exhausting watching this video clip. This guy burned 1,500 calories in this sermon. He really, really did. But I was watching it to see some of the um, reactions of the audience because I want to know who finds this kind of affectation. And it's affectation. it's, It's like when Reformed Baptist young preachers try to pretend that they're Pastor Martin. Okay? You know, you start off really, really quiet, and then all of a sudden you get really, really loud. Uh, d- let Al Martin be Al Martin. Nobody else can be Al Martin. But man, I cannot tell you how many Reformed Baptists I've heard that try to be Al Martin, and it, it, just, it just doesn't work. It's an affectation. It's adopting, and that's what this guy is doing. This is, and it was exhausting to listen to. 
you 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 developed. I think I said I developed asthma listening to this because that's what it was. But then I happened to be, I happened to be watching it and I saw this and I stopped and I did a freeze frame. See what I put an arrow in, and here's this young lady, and she's sitting in the back, and she is not, she ain't listening to nothing. And the the look on her face is, I've heard this my entire life. And she's probably 17, just about to leave home. And the thing that crossed my mind was this kind of preaching, which isn't, which is totally focused on the means and not the message, provides no solid foundation for anyone. And I was just looking at this going, that's the poor child I'm concerned about, is the one who has been, a, it's spiritual abuse. That's what, that's what so many people experience in these types of churches. It's just simple spiritual abuse. They're never, ever challenged to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're just screamed at because people think that screaming is preaching. And it's not. It's not. By the way, uh, before I go to the Molinism stuff, which I have promised to do, yesterday... Uh, Apologia uh, previewed, not previewed, premiered, because uh, we don't we don't go live to YouTube. We we're on Facebook. We don't go live to YouTube, so you have to create a file and get it uploaded and stuff. And so you do a watch party type thing, and you uh, you put it on YouTube. And they have comments open, and so uh, I saw that it was. Pre, uh, it was premiering. So I clicked on it and I, I started looking at the comments. And I was fascinated by how many people are so bored in life that they would see that a sermon on limited atonement was going to be on. And so they're going to camp out in the comments just simply to misrepresent what's being distract from what's being said um, it was it was amazing it was sad I, I kept pointing out but but you all aren't listening to what I'm saying are you because I was answering almost all their objections just in the sermon itself but the one guy said I already know it's it's evil doctrine I already know it's satanic doctrine I don't need to be listening to what it says and you just wonder who sends these people over um it was um, just another reminder of why you know, YouTube can be a great thing. We had people watching from literally around the world, and most of the people obviously were appreciative, and, and the ones that were actually listening weren't participating in the, in the back and forth anyways. Um, but still, at, at the same time, the, um, it was fascinating to observe uh, that type of stuff. And it's the first part of two parts – and those of you who are regular listeners to this program, you've, you've heard pretty much everything that I was saying before, with, well, with the exception of some of the, you know, pastoral application, exhortation type stuff, I suppose might be something a little bit different than I would do here. But we, we were in Romans 8. We have dug pretty deep on Romans 8 uh, here. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the way that is. Um, oh, 
I just remembered what that charge is. Because <laughs> I talked to you about it. I talked to you about it. Yep, you remember what I talked to you about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just remember exactly. I just, and I even told you I didn't get an email on it. Yep, sorry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, sorry, we were obviously having a conversation about something uh, beforehand, and isn't it, uh, no, it's, did baseball, didn't baseball close down again? I don't, I don't know what's going on with all that. Uh, the Big Ten gave up today and rolled over and said, scratch my belly, we want to be safe. So, yeah, anyway. All right, so um, how am I going to do this? Uh, I guess I'm just going to play it. I was directed to a uh, answer given by William Lane Craig to the issue of apostasy. Now, you might think, well, that's, that's not really William Lane Craig's thing, is it? I mean, you know, for years and years and years, we've, uh, William Lane Craig has emphasized uh, philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. Well, recently, he's been getting into certain theological issues. And I find it interesting that, that people who have spent their entire lives in one field feel that it's pretty simple to just simply walk into another and have the same level of uh, knowledge in that field that you, that you would in the field that you spent most of your life in. Have uh, you noticed atheist scientists, for example, think that it's just simple to become a theologian type thing? Uh, we've seen that from a lot of people. Anyway, but the thing is, Craig's theology, Craig's soteriology, in light of his Molinism, is what I want you to be hearing in the answers that are the answer that is given here, because it's an interesting question that is asked of him, and it's basically based on his Molinism. Uh, couldn't God keep someone from apostatizing by killing them before they apostatize? Now remember, if you're if you're sitting here going, "What is Molinism?" <laughs> I wish you hadn't asked that question. Um, <laughs> uh, most people, once they ask that question, once they get an answer, they wish they had not asked the question in the first place. But since Molinism is so often used as the escape pod, the way out of dealing with Reformed theology, in essence. Uh, Molinism is a philosophical theory developed by Louis de Molina, a Jesuit scholar. Some would say that the central elements of it were developed by people before Molina, maybe by at least some elements by some Anabaptists around the same time period. But Molina was the one who wrote extensively on it, and it was used as a mechanism for getting around the Reformation, and specifically Reformed theology and Calvinism. What it does is it posits a micromanagement of every aspect 
of creation. And you go, well, how does that get you on Calvinism? Because you have an exhaustive divine decree as well. Yes, but the exhaustive divine decree is free and flows from God's purpose in every aspect. The micromanagement of Molinism is all based upon the autonomy of man. You say, how can that, how do those two fit? Because of the theory of middle knowledge. The theory of middle knowledge. Now, the problem is, it's, it's a little bit like when we talk about CBGM, coherence-based genealogical methodology in textual critical issues. Uh, sometimes the terminology is not the most descriptive, or it, it's not just not descriptive, it's descriptive of something that it's not supposed to be descriptive of. <laughs> so when people think about middle knowledge, you have to understand what that knowledge is in the middle of. And I guess when the, when, when the term was initially uh, coined and came into use, most people had, believe it or not, most people had a theological education, and hence they, they knew uh, that there, were, there was two forms of knowledge in orthodoxy in God. The knowledge of himself, and then the knowledge of what God does. So God knows himself perfectly, and that's an eternal reality to God. God knows himself perfectly. But then God chose to act and create, and so he has full knowledge of everything that he has done, everything he could have done, how he could have done things differently. But there is nothing in the created order that he does not have knowledge of, because he created all things. If it exists, it, it exists because it finds its origin in his will. So, you have these two kinds of knowledge, and middle knowledge is between the two logically. Why do I say logically? Because God's knowledge of himself has to come before his knowledge of what he creates, because he has to know who he is before he creates. And middle knowledge comes before the knowledge God has of creation, so it is pre-decree. And in Molinism, because it comes before the decree, it then limits and conditions what God can and cannot do. Why? What is middle knowledge? Middle knowledge is a special knowledge. In fact, William Lane Craig is to describe it here as something with which God is endowed. Now, that's interesting. That's a real interesting piece of terminology. God is endowed. Middle knowledge cannot arise from God. Where does it come from? They can't say. Molinists don't know. It doesn't come from his decree. It comes before his decree, and hence conditions his decree. So normally how you hear it described, functionally, is that God has exhausted knowledge of all counterfactuals. Well, of course God has knowledge of counterfactuals. God knows that if he hadn't done X, then Y would have happened. Okay, that's fine. But this is much more specific than that. It is the knowledge of what Bob Smith would do if you placed Bob Smith 
in any given circumstance. So if, if you put Bob Smith into the days of Moses as an Egyptian overseer, probably want to change his name from Bob Smith, probably get a lot of teasing as a kid in Egypt if your name is Bob Smith. But what he would do in any given situation is known to God. Whether Bob Smith is living 2,400 years ago, or whether Bob Smith is living today, or in the time of Christ, or whatever. This special middle knowledge tells God what any given individual will do in any given circumstance. So the Molest idea is that God, having this middle knowledge, can micromanage, he can, he can look at all of these possible worlds and say, okay, if I put Bob Smith together with Tracy Jones together with, and he can do this with billions of people, and I make this person the father of this person, that person the child of this person, and I, I, I do this, what would be the outcome? Well, what if I changed this around here? What if I changed that around there? And what he can do is he can go through all of these possible worlds. And what he's looking for is the best possible world. Now, how, you, how do you define best possible world? Well, the Molas aren't quite certain about that. They're really not. They don't know. Craig is going to argue that it's sort of the best possible world because the most number of people get saved with the least amount of evil. But he recognizes that may not, that may not be exactly what God's going for. But that's a strong possibility, basically. And so what this means is there are certain people God cannot save because in no possible world will they be saved in light of this middle knowledge. But he... Therefore, what God does in his decree in creation is predicated upon what middle knowledge reveals to him and therefore limits what he can and cannot do. So the big question, obviously, is, well, wait a minute. How can there be such a thing as middle knowledge before before God decrees to make Bob Smith. How can you know what Bob Smith's going to do before you decree to make Bob Smith? Because obviously, how we are made, our level of intelligence, our level of athletic ability, our, everything about us that flows from God's decree is extremely important to how we respond. What family we're put in, who your parents are, whether you have both parents. These are all vitally important things. And so the very idea that God could have knowledge of non-decreed and created people is absurd on its face. But what's more is, what's the origin of this knowledge? If it, if it constrains God's decree, but it doesn't come forth from God, he is endowed with it. Who endowed him with it? Where did it come from? 
It doesn't come from the being of God. It doesn't come from his will. And the whole purpose of it is to maintain and protect autonomy, the autonomous will of man. That's the whole thing. That's what it's all about. So the idea is then that God creates the best of all possible worlds, saves the most people, wants everybody to be saved, but knows they're not going to be. But he actuates the one possible world that's going to have either the most people saved or maximum number of people saved with the minimum amount of sin or whatever. You can see now why it takes so long, why once you start talking about Molinism, it's like you, it takes up the whole program. <laughs> Just trying to explain it. It takes forever. Um, so William Lane Craig is going to answer a question about apostasy from a Molinist perspective. Now that should be interesting in and of itself, right? I simply ask you to listen. I'm going to be interacting. I'm going to be playing it at 1.4. That's pretty fast. The nice thing about audio note takers is it doesn't turn them into chipmunks. Uh, but they will be talking fast. But listen and see. I don't want to poison the well, but this is easy. What does Scripture have to do with any of this? What does Scripture have to do with any of this? All right, so here's um, we'll listen to it about two minutes before I'll break in. Well, I'm not going to make that a promise. <laughs> it says, hi, Dr. Craig. I've been studying the perseverance of the saints, and I found your paper on the subject very thought-provoking. Let me stop right there. The perseverance of the saints means that once a person comes to Christ, that the Holy Spirit preserves them, that God keeps them, and that they don't apostatize or lose their salvation. It, it deals with that whole issue? Yes, that's right. Okay. So, he said... I said I was going to play the whole thing, but let me just point out, there is no reason to believe in the perseverance of the saints if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God that results in their salvation in the first place. It's none. There's absolutely no reason to. I'm sorry. It, 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 is, it is almost sad for me to observe those who do believe in what they call one saved, always saved, or eternal security, or whatever else it might be. But they then deny the sovereignty of God in election, in, uncondition, in unconditional election. They, they deny the, the man's inability to save themselves. They deny um, the particular redeeming act of, of Christ in the cross. They deny the irresistible grace of God. But then they hold on to that last point. Uh, it doesn't work. And you're going to see how disastrous it is right here. I've been wrestling with the subject as of late, and there appear to be certain difficulties with the traditional understanding of perseverance, some of which you have highlighted in your paper. However, I would like to ask about a difficulty I see on the other side. My question pertains to reconciling God's loving nature with the teaching that Christians can become lost or lose their salvation. If God, yes. if God loves his children enough to send Christ to die for them, why wouldn't he simply take the life of the believer before they apostatize, given his foreknowledge that if they're kept alive, they will apostatize? After all, God is in control of when we die, and Scripture repeatedly affirms that God loves his sheep deeply and desires none of them to be lost. See now you notice, what's the basis of that? The shepherd chooses the sheep. Unconditional election, which is denied by William Lane Craig, um, 
in favor of the autonomous actions of man, even though, I mean, the Mullahs can, can say, well, yes, there is election because God chooses everyone who's going to be saved, but he only does so based upon knowing that putting them in certain situations will cause them to be saved. That's why there are certain people God can't save because there is no given set of circumstances wherein they could be saved. I, I suppose there might be some other people that could not help but be saved, because in any set of circumstances, they will accept Jesus. Well, except they've never heard of him, I suppose. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, but you, you have to differentiate. In the, if you're functioning on middle knowledge, you can say God elected someone, but that's only because that someone fit into the scenario, the possible world, that fits the parameters that God's attempting to accomplish. Okay? That's totally different than God freely choosing a people in Christ Jesus. That's, they're very different things. To me, that it is well within God's capabilities and that it is more consistent with his character to take one's life while they are still in a state of grace. My mind jumps to 1 Corinthians 11.32, which appears to repeat this sentiment. If he is able to, well then, well, then why doesn't he? I would love to know your thoughts on this, as I have a hard time reconciling God's love with his allowing apostasy to occur, especially when it appears it could be prevented. The answers to all of this are found in Reformed theology, and, and have been for a long, long time. Um, there are no answers to this within the Molinistic system. That's the, I just feel sorry for some of these people writing in. I, I hope they find those answers somewhere else. I'll invite you to read your answer to him. All right, here's what I wrote in reply. This is a really thought-provoking question about which I've never really thought. So let me offer just a couple random thoughts here that may stimulate further thinking about the subject. One way to respond to the question is to affirm that this is exactly what God does. He ends the life of would-be apostates before they fall permanently away. The obvious challenge to this response is that we seem to have good examples of people who do apostatize. But here we have to differentiate between such alleged cases and people who temporarily fall away and then eventually repent and come back to faith, like the Apostle Peter. How do we know that persons in Scripture who seemingly apostatize, like Demas, do so irrevocably and do not come back to Christ, even on their deathbeds? Okay, so there there have been a few biblical examples, but no texts examined yet. Where, where would you go at this point? you got to go to 1 John 2. They went out from us, so it might be demonstrated not truly of us, they have been of us, they would have not gone out from us, etc., etc. That's where you'd go, but that doesn't really fit this scenario, so they, he doesn't end up going there. Moreover, we must differentiate from permanent apostates, people who never had genuine saving faith in the first place, but merely a counterfeit. What's genuine saving faith? Again, the Reformed person has, has, can deal with this, regeneration, the gift of faith, and so on and so forth. But if you are really affirming autonomy, then what is genuine saving faith? What, what marks that? And where does it come from? That, that would be one of the questions. Like Judas. In cases of counterfeit faith, apostasy does not truly enter the picture. So, on this view, although it is possible to apostatize and forfeit salvation, no one ever actually does so. As you explain, this is a Molinist viewpoint, rather like the views I describe in my article. I suggested that God might provide gifts of grace that he knew would be effective in winning the free perseverance of the saints. So, 
in the mo- so he knows what free gifts of grace will be effective in creating perseverance and what on on what basis middle knowledge so he knows that for certain people if you give them certain gifts of grace they will persevere so that that now has to be factored into the creation of this perfect world and so really part of the part of the question now is well if that's the case then is apostasy a part of the um, equation for determining the best possible world. Not only how many people get saved, but how many people endure to the end. It starts getting really, really difficult. You suggest that if that's not feasible, then he just kills off the would-be apostate. The implication of both views is perseverance of the saints along with libertarian freedom. An alternative view would be to say that God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing someone to freely apostatize despite God's every effort to save him. For God's concern is not just with an isolated individual, but with a whole world of free creatures whom he seeks to draw freely to salvation. It may be that if, for example, he kills off Joe before he can fall away, then his little daughter Sherry, embittered by God's taking her daddy prematurely, refuses to come to faith in God and maybe even falls away from faith herself, in which case God has to kill off Sherry, too, before she can do so. I think you can see how quickly this can get out of hand. Maybe Sherry, or her child, or grandchild, etc., had God not killed off Sherry's father, and hence Sherry herself, would have become a great hymn writer or Christian doctor who would help to bring thousands to Christ. Rather than a single apostate in hell, one might wind up with multitudes in hell instead. When we remember that God's goal is to bring an optimal number of people freely to salvation, it's not at all implausible that such a world would include some apostates. Okay. Now, okay, I, I feel, honestly, for people who get stuck in situations like this where you've, you've, you missed the turn three turns ago, and now you're 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 trying to deal with the map, and it's, it's, it, it ends up it's messy. But when you start trying to force God's actions to be determined by His middle knowledge, which does not originate in Him, and is not a part of His decree, you are trying to defend the autonomous free will of creatures at the cost of the autonomous free will of the creator. That's what all these systems are. Instead of an autonomous, free creator who weaves the fabric of time to his own glory, that's the focus, not the free will of man. God's own glory changes everything changes everything so you're the calvinist isn't sitting around going um well uh if such and such a person dies off early then this could result in this and that means down the road this uh, this great christian doctor that was supposed to bring thousands of people to christ he's not going to be born or uh he's not going to be a christian and, and, and no that's not a part of no prophet of yahweh thought that's how god did things None. That's obvious, isn't it? Can we, can we, can we say it? that's obvious? It is. Um, 
And so this kind of, of tremendous confusion comes from starting on the, on the wrong foot. What a compelling question and uh, an answer there, Bill. And, you know, back when I was in junior high, we, I used to just fret over things like this, junior high and high school. Uh, uh, you know, if, uh, shouldn't we kill our babies before they reach the age of accountability oh. to ensure uh-huh. that they got to have an, or the minute somebody gets saved, you ought to take them out behind the church and shoot them. <laughs> you know, and things yeah. like that. You know, we used to fret over that. So you're, you're giving... I think the Molinist perspective really, really helps here. The Molinist perspective really, really helps here. <laughs> Okay, I never thought about taking people out back and, and shooting them once they got saved, uh, personally. Um, but, uh, you know, I get it. If you if you don't understand that God is working his purpose, it's his purpose. It's not, it's not, it's not man-centered. It's God-centered. Uh, those are all thoughts that come from a very man-centered theology. And uh, once you're delivered from that... Yeah. Now, Jonathan sent this to a theologian friend of his who is kind of a universalist, uh, leaning that yeah, way right now. Yeah, that's key. Um, that's he says, uh, this is awful that God is, uh, uh, is a clumsy half-wit on this view who breaks many lives in the making of the salvation omelet. Now, now just, I, I can't resist interrupting at this point. Sure. To, this is where you see the emotional undertone and rejection of a view here that I think deserves serious consideration. Molinism does not postulate a clumsy, half-wit demiurge as its deity, but rather one who is endowed with middle knowledge um, and therefore able to providentially order the world. So right off the bat here, we're seeing a very angry, emotional response by this universalist to this Molinist perspective. Yeah. Sometimes... The, the clearest expressions come when you're responding to an attack. And so here is an attack upon Dr. Craig's position. And that's where he says, in describing God, says he is endowed with middle knowledge. Now, I was told by someone that, that Craig either no longer uses or has repudiated the example that he used a number of years ago, that God has to deal with the cards he's been dealt so there is a co- cosmic card dealer who is the or that's the origin source of middle knowledge as he said this person's going to be this way and this person's going to be that way who is that card dealer we don't know um if he has actually repudiated that if he's actually come out and said you know what that's a that is a bad example i shouldn't have ever said that there god is not dealing with the cards he's been dealt i don't see how that i don't see how he can say it because that's his that's what his position is that's that's what this is all about that's what middle knowledge is. I mean, that's just a colloquial expression that accurately expresses it. That's all. Um, but this being endowed with this knowledge, which does not have its origin in him, is what limits his capacity and ability to do things, which then gives the ground for the, all this speculation going on. You, you, you have yet, you had a couple people in the Bible mentioned You've not had a single verse exegeted, not a single verse even cited so far on a subject of apostasy. He says uh, Craig's algorithms around how many souls and how much conscience eternal torment warrant bliss for some are chilling. Now, yeah, I want to interrupt again at that point. Uh, This again, it's an emotional reaction that um, I think fails to take into account how one achieves the best balance of good and evil when you're dealing with libertarian free agents. Okay, so here's, this is what I wanted to get to. Um, 
here is the example. If, if he's gotten rid of the car dealer one, this is his new example. And you just heard what he said. He, he, his concern is the balance of good and evil when dealing with libertarian free agents. And so this is God's problem. He's, he's stuck with these free creatures. And his libertarian will is constrained by theirs. And his primary thing is not the freedom of God, it's freedom of man. I'm sorry, that's a man-centered theology. Is it not? How, how else could you describe it? So listen to the example he's going to use here. Because I think it's just as revealing as the cosmic card dealer example was. And we face these kinds of decisions all the time. For example, you remember when there was that horrible mass shooting in Las Vegas uh, from the hotel and so many people at the music festival were lying, bleeding out or scattered around the ground and the first responders came. And the first thing these first responders have to do is to do triage on the victims to see which ones have the best chance of surviving if they are treated and which victims to simply pass over untreated because you want to save as many people as you possibly can. Uh, and so these are the kinds of moral decisions that I think have to be made. It is not uh, chilling, uh, calculating algorithms. Um, it is an attempt to ask ourselves, how do we achieve the best balance of good and evil in a world of libertarian free agents? Yeah. So now we have the triage situation where the first responder looks at the patient and has to make the snap decision. This one's going to make it, or this one's not going to make it. Who am I going to invest my time and effort in? I don't think that's nearly as... <laughs> I think he needs to go back to the card dealer. <laughs> I really, really do. Because, <clears throat> I, I mean, so middle knowledge tells him who can't who who's going to make it and who 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 isn't i guess so i mean might you have certain individuals who have a really small narrow range of prescribed conditions in which they could possibly be saved that are so constricting that it's not worth trying to put them into the scenario, therefore, to get them saved. So they're more wounded by the nature of, of middle knowledge than others who could be put in dozens of different situations and they'd get saved. They would respond positively to the message. But if you've got certain people, there's only one or two circumstances, then you've got to build everybody else around them. And that might, because you don't have a divine decree that might result in fewer people being saved. So this is, so God isn't just some, what was the description beforehand he took uh, umbrage at? He's not, he's a huge supercomputer. And he's running all these scenarios. And he plugs all these people in. And now the supercomputer is using AI to do triage. That's where Molinism now is, is, is AI to do triage. And I was rather amused that he said, 
there are better explanations out there that, that are more consonant with Scripture and that, that don't make God into a sadistic figure. Well, well what are they? I mean, you can say, uh, I mean, yeah. you at least try to discuss a, a couple of options. And again, make God out to be a sadistic figure? My argument is an attempt to explain how God in his goodness would not allow people to apostatize and lose their faith. How God wants to save as many people as he possibly can without abrogating their free will. So this is, uh, this is just cruel caricaturing of the view. Okay, so have you noticed how central? <laughs> we, we've, we've heard the central, most important affirmation. If, if you wanted to say what is, the, what is a fundamental defining difference here, you have not heard a word about the glory of God. And you will not hear a word about the glory of God, because that is not what God is about. God is about the free will of man. God is about free creatures. That's what he's about. Um, glory of God is, is just, it's just not, not a part of the, of the calculus at all um, in this system. Okay. Well, let's get down to what Jonathan says next. He says, Initially, Craig appeals to the notion that God could well be killing off people before they apostatize. Quoting you, one way to respond to the question is to affirm that this is exactly what God does. He ends the lives of would-be apostates before they permanently fall away. Now, mm -hmm. the next line is, this is a huge assertion and an ad hoc appeal to what God might be logically able to do, but for which we have no a posteriori. Evidence, this is pure conjecture. Well, Bill, that's all you were asked to do. You know, I exactly. mean, you were asked to offer uh, some conjecture here, you know, to, to offer an answer Hopefully an answer that's logically coherent, scripturally coherent, and so on. There you go. Now, catch that. Scripturally coherent. What you need to understand is that when the Molinist describes his position as scripturally coherent, that is completely different than saying derived from Scripture. Scripturally coherent means you can't prove a direct contradiction to what I'm saying. That's completely different by saying, uh, that's completely different from saying, this is what Scripture teaches us in answer to this question. And it's amazing to me how many people don't see that difference. You need to see that difference. There is all the world of difference between telling someone, this is what Scripture teaches positively, and saying, here is my speculation and I'm unaware of anywhere where Scripture directly contradicts the conclusions I've come to. Well, of course, Scripture might not even address what you're coming to. But that's the assertion you're making. And that's, what, that's how it's being used here. They're not going to say this is derived from Scripture. But their claim is, well, it's not directly contradicted by Scripture. And I, I would even dispute that. But if, if the answer is logically coherent and it's biblically consistent, then it's not a deficit of the suggestion that it's conjectural. Uh, one isn't claiming that it's true. One is claiming that this could be the case. Yeah, you're offering some... In which case the objection dissolves. Yeah. So we're not, we're not saying this is true. Okay? We're, we're, we're just, we're, we're conjecturing and, and just talking about possibilities. Well, what's the only thing that would make that worthwhile if there isn't a clear revelation from Scripture that is true? But are you really saying that the scripture is that silent on the issue of apostasy? There actually are a number of texts. There's a lot about the dangers. There's a lot of, and I think 1 John 2, 2, uh, 1 John 2 is absolutely 
central. If they were, ha- they went out from us, so that it might be demonstrated they were not truly. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. There, there is that. That's you would think that any meaningful conversation or discussion about apostasy would have to at least include that verse, if not start there. You would think, but okay, just a little bit more. Exactly. I just wanted to point that out. And then he says, yeah, oh, worthwhile. The, the crux of Craig's argument appears to be one of consequentialism, whereby God uses someone instrumentally to bring about more people who are saved. And then, you know, in your example of Sherry's father is killed off because he necessarily brings about more people into union with God and or by allowing him to come to God would bring about the opposite. Sherry's father is a pawn in the game of optimally saved chess. And that's inaccurate. I'm not espousing consequentialism, which is the view that the ends justify the the optimal number of people possible. And that may often involve passing over some and not saving them because more lives will be preserved if you do so. And that's not consequentialism. That is simply weighing uh, goods and evils and adopting the moral principle, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the most loving thing to do here is to save as many lives as possible. Now, I just, I just need to point out real quickly, this triage language is based upon the content of middle knowledge that informs God of what individuals would do in certain given circumstances. So the, the whole idea of those first responders running onto that field in, in Las Vegas once they took the guy out and starting to treat people. You know, we think of the, the horrible evil. Something. No, this is just simply because of middle knowledge, just because of what middle knowledge tells you. This is God doing these decisions in determining what world he's going to create that has the best balance of good and evil, saved, unsaved, so on and so forth. Okay. And of course, in my example, it is God's will that Joe, Sherry's father, be saved. He's not a pawn at all. God wants Joe to be saved. He gives him sufficient grace to be saved. The only reason that Joe is not saved is because he irrevocably and freely rejects God's saving grace and every effort to save him uh, and repudiates God's love for him. And God mourns his loss. But God, out of respect for Joe's moral autonomy as a free moral agent, allows him to make such a choice. So God wants to save him. God tries to save him. God extends grace to save him. But for some reason, God actuated a world in which he will not be saved. So he did not put Joe into the context whereby he would actually be saved or he would have been saved. So for some reason, he tries desperately, but doesn't actually accomplish what he's trying to do, I guess is what he's saying. This, my friends, is Molinism. What I'm going to do, since we have, we've gone for a full 90 minutes, I have one other uh, clip uh, from Frank Turk on uh, Molinism. It's not nearly this in-depth. It's much shorter. I'll hold that off for the next program, uh, which will be uh, tomorrow, um, probably an hour later, if that's okay. Um, I've got a lot going on in the morning tomorrow morning. So um, we'll, we'll slide that one over to, to, to there and uh, sort of pick up with the conversation uh, on that side. So 
Hopefully it's all been useful to you. Thanks for watching the program today. Like I said, we'll see you tomorrow afternoon. God bless.